Well, my name is Ben Kearns, and I get the privilege of being with you this morning, and we're going to jump into uh, to Genesis. And uh, Genesis is uh, my second favorite book of the Bible, and my first favorite, Song of Solomon. But besides that, Genesis is, uh, is an incredible, incredible book. It's the beginning of the whole scriptures. Um, really quickly, take a look at this, this picture. Are there any um, astronomy nerds out there? I mean, buffs or nerds, buffs? Okay. Does anyone know what this is? Stars, dots, right, exactly. So I looked at this. I had no idea what it was. This actually is a centaur. Check this out. I mean, it takes a little bit of, uh, a little bit of imagination, but that's a centaur. Let's go back one more time. You can kind of almost see it like, oh, yeah. So, um, all right, let's go back to the centaur. So imagine a life before cell phones, right? A life before indoor lighting, and you were outside staring up at the skies all day. And it's just, just it's so complex. There's so many stars. And now with telescopes, you know, there's just billions and billions of stars. And it is so, lo- it's so easy to just get lost, right? With all of the data points, with all the complexity of the universe, and you're looking at all this stuff, and it makes no sense. But what happens is if you start connecting those dots in certain ways, right, you get, you, it begins to tell a story, begins to tell a narrative, and that narrative kind of becomes the anchor. It helps your mind actually begin to understand what's going on around us. And so when you actually know your constellations, you actually can see more of the universe. Did you know that? You can see more of the universe if you know where to kind of help your mind have these anchor thoughts. And the whole world is so complex that we, in our little simple minds, we have to have these narratives. We have to have ways to put all these dots together. We do that uh, politically right now. We're in this moment, right, where both right and left have this really deep narrative about how they understand the world. Whatever data supports your narrative, you're like, yeah! Whatever data doesn't support your narrative, you're like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about, right? Because it's so complex, and so we just have to pick a narrative, and we hold on to that. We do that with religion, too. We do that with the story of God. And, um, and really what we're going to look at this morning is Genesis. It's the beginning of the story of God. And it's helpful because all of human history is so complex. There's so many data points throughout all of history. And how in the world do we begin to understand what the world is all about? What is God all about? And so Genesis is the beginning of that process. But before we hop into Genesis, let's just be honest for a second. We all have a big problem with Genesis, or at least I do. Most of us approach Genesis um, as a third grader would approach Genesis. We remember singing maybe silly songs when you were a kid about the, anim- the animals they went on the arky, twosie by twosies or whatever, right? You have like these little songs. Maybe you went to a church nursery and you're like, look at all these beautiful stories. And then you got older, you're like, about genocide and nudity and sex and incest all over the children's nursery. Like, what is going on there? And, um, and so what happens is, we, we approach uh, Genesis with our third grade mind. Like we remember having little stories and then like we uh, hit puberty and wanted to make out with people. And then we finally decided to check back the scriptures and we're like, what is going on here? Well, the scriptures are so, comp- I mean, they're so old. They're, they're written thousands and thousands of years ago in a different context. And we have to put on a different lens. We have to take off our third grade lens and put on our adult lens and begin to wrestle with what in the world is going on with the scriptures. And Genesis is really hard because there's lots of weird stuff in there. There's lots of weird stories in there. And there's lots of ways that people approach Genesis um, to try to weasel out of certain things. And, and what's interesting, you might be different, but I've kind of found two different postures I have when I read Scripture, and especially when I read Genesis. One is I have kind of a little bit of a rebellious nature, a part of me. And the truth is, I mean, I love God. I love Jesus. I love God's Word. But if I'm really honest, there's certain things in God's Word I don't really want to deal with. There's certain things that God has for me that I think that's kind of too 
too hard. And so I kind of try to have this contrarian view of Scripture, and I try to look at all the, all the different data points and find all the loopholes as possible, and I'm like, well, the Big Bang, Genesis, doesn't work, I'm out. I'm free to do whatever I want. So right, there's, there's, there's this rebellious way that we look at Scripture, or sometimes there's this fearful way that we look at Scripture. And now that I'm a dad and I have like teenagers, I, I realize oh my goodness, I want my kids to behave a certain way and I want the world to make sense and everything's so out of control. And so we kind of eliminate all the data points and pretend the world isn't as crazy as it is and we just hold on to a few data points and we kind of lock it down around us. But when we do one side or the other, we actually miss out on what I think God has for us because the scripture has proven over thousands and thousands of years to be inspired by God, to be his holy word and it has been useful for training people up in righteousness to reveal who God is and what he longs for us. And so this morning, as we get ready to, to pop in, hop into Genesis, we need to have this open heart, this open mind, not this, um, not this rebellious heart that goes, well, it doesn't work with science, or this fearful mind that says, I don't even want to understand it all because what if, what if something in there is wrong and I don't know do that, about that, so I'm going to close my brain down. But to think, oh my goodness, God actually has something for you and for me in the scriptures excuse me, right in Genesis 1. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to page 1, Genesis 1, and we're going to start at the very beginning. And so what we're going to see is just like in all the constellations, there's all these bazillions of stars. And you kind of need to have one kind of anchor point to go, oh, this is where we start. And then everything kind of builds from there. Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the North Star of the story of God. It's the very beginning. It's the anchor point where God wants to clarify two really important truths that end up setting the stage for the whole rest of the story. So here we are, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning, and it was the first day. And really, even in English, this is just a beautiful piece of poetry, right? There was evening and there was morning, and it was the first day. And so as we begin in Genesis chapter 1, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what's really interesting is this one line causes so much conflict, but not because of a faith and science issue. It causes so much conflict because what God is saying, the very first sentence right out of the gate, God is saying, the one true God, Yahweh, created the heavens and the earth. Right out of the gate um, in, a, in, a, in a polytheistic context where everyone believed in multiple gods, God comes right out of the gate and says, actually, there's one God. This is a, th- these are Mesopotamian gods. If I can remember them, there's the god An and Ki and en, en, Enlil. As, we're not Mesopotamian, it doesn't matter. And Enki, right? These are the four main Mesopotamian gods. And they're the god of the, the heavens, the god of the earth, the god of the sky, the god of the sea. These were the four anchor gods in the Mesopotamian world. This is the same place where, where the scriptures would have come forward. And all of a sudden, right out of the gate, you have Yahweh revealing himself to his people saying, oh, you, you worship Anki? That's great. Yahweh created Anki. You, you worship the god of the heavens? Our God, he made the heavens. You worship the God of the sea. Our God made the God of the sea. You go down to Egypt and they worship Ra. God goes, oh, you know what? That actually happened later. And and God created the sun and the moon. And so what an offense to this polytheistic culture where everyone's worshiping all these gods. and, And right out of the gate, God says, our God, the one true God, Yahweh, created the heavens 
and the earth, the sky and the sea, the sun and the moon, the plants and the animals, all the things that humans were worshiping, God says, I created them. And what's interesting is all of humans in every civilization over all the world, humans have had this innate desire. They, they long to worship like we are made to worship something. Every civilization has a way in which they worship. And what's wild is even in, in secular uh, cultures like uh, in the communist Russia, like there still was a way of worship that you watch the way uh, the, 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 you know, the big celebrations happen on the square. Like it's, it looks like church service. It's a worship. It's in us to worship. Humans need to worship. And God's saying, okay, but you want to know who to worship? You don't worship the state. You don't worship the river God or the, the, the mountain God or the sun God or the moon God. You worship the one true God, Yahweh. And the whole rest of Scripture is, is this really offensive starting point that gets over and over again plopped in front of them. So we're going to read next week when uh, the Israelites, they go from Canaan to Egypt. They become slaves. And Moses, you know, says, let my people go. That's all next week, right? And, uh, and then there's all these plagues. And one of the Bible scholars that I was reading, basically he was saying, it wasn't just that God wanted to inflict gnats on everybody that each one of the plagues actually correlated to a different Egyptian god. And it was basically like, like Moses thumbing his nose at all these Egyptian gods. Oh, you worship, you worship these guys? You worship those guys? Well, Yahweh, the one true God, is actually the God over all of those things. How offensive is that? And then we see in the New Testament, the same thing happens. Paul goes to Athens. And in uh, Acts chapter 17, right, he goes into Athens and he looks and he sees all these temples that are made to all these, all these altars, to all these gods. And he comes across this one and it's, oh, look at an altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, you know what, that, you know who that God is? And he begins to tell the whole story. That God, the unknown God, the God that you long to worship is the maker of heaven and earth, the one true God. He again later states so clearly in Romans chapter one, he says, Man, you've, you've, you've worshipped created things instead of the creator, and it's made your mind and your heart all get, all get dark and, and not understand things. So all humans long to worship something. And God, right out of the gate, says the most offensive thing ever when he says, Yahweh, the one true God, is the God over all things. The psalmist says this beautiful uh, psalm at the end of Psalm, verse, uh, psalm 96. It says this, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are simply idols, but it is the Lord who made the heavens. Gosh, what an awesome declaration. So in Genesis chapter 1, I think that's the first thing right in the very beginning, the North Stars, man, there's one true God, Yahweh, creator of everything, heaven and earth. The next thing is at the very end of Genesis is this idea of the unique value of humans. There's this idea of the Imago Dei. This is a picture of the very small part of the picture of Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel, the, creation, you know, the creating of Adam. And there's all humans all over the world have, rest, have come to the idea that humans are unique. We have the divine spark. Every civilization has tried to find some way, like what is going on with the human being that's different from all of creation? And uh, instead of wanting to know forever and ever, scriptures decide, God's like, listen, let me help you clarify this. So here we are on the sixth day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind, let us make humanity in our image, in the likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over all the livestock and the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind. God created humanity in his own image. It says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. 
Gosh, what a mind-blowing thought. I mean, for all of human history, especially in the ancient world, the way that they understood human beings, where human beings were the playthings of the gods. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine because we're so sophisticated, um, but in the ancient world, right? Like you were just this tiny little fragile human and all the dangers of the world were all out there and you were trying to make sense of it. In all the creation myths of all the ancient cultures, human beings were simply like the monopoly game for the gods. They just saw them as, as things to play with, as things to torture, um, or as, things, as ways for them to serve them. And here, right in the beginning, God says, no, 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 no. Human beings are not just these insignificant beings, but they are made in my image. Women and men made in the image of God. And he wraps it up and says this, and God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and it was the sixth, sixth day. What I think is so incredible, and boy, man, we take it for granted living in the post-1960s in America that, of course, women and men are equal. Imagine five, 10,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, right, to say not just men, but women and men, somehow together, the uniqueness of both sexes coming together, forming the image of God, of saying all human beings deserve dignity and value and respect. Everyone gets that you love your tribe, you love your family, you love your kin, you, you, you support your kin to the death. And everyone outside of your family circle, they deserve death, right? You have to steal food from them, steal resources from them, blood feud, whatever. It did not matter in the slightest. And yet God in the beginning, wants to clarify, no, 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 no. That's not the way that God's going to work. And in fact, what's interesting is, we, is if you read through, through the scriptures, you saw the call of Abraham. And the call of Abraham was to start this brand new people, but not to be God's favorite people that could then just destroy all the world around them and show how mighty God is. But it was a new people that were designed to be a blessing to the whole earth. And Moses on Mount Sinai receives the Ten Commandments and begins to write down the laws in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, like in this ancient people, God commands his people to look out for the poor, the orphans, the widows, the aliens, the foreigners, the strangers. Like, you don't understand how, I don't understand how costly it is to give of your resources when you have just enough for your own family to barely live and God's compelling you to share what you have to the weakest and poorest and marginalized and not even in your clan, in your group of people, but even for the foreigner and the stranger. It is a mind-blowing thing. And that trajectory has just been building on in, uh, in the Judeo-Christian heritage since then, where now we're in this moment where, yes, that is true, that all human beings deserve um, respect and dignity. Um, one of my favorite authors and, and preachers is this guy, Eugene Cho. He is, I think, just a prophetic voice. He uh, has a heart for justice, and, uh, and, he, and yet he seems to always be hitting the church on every issue. And just when you think, he only likes my thing, not the other thing, and then all of a sudden he hits you with another one. And if you don't, you should follow him on Twitter because it is just a challenge that I think is from the voice of God. But he had this one tweet a little bit ago that, I just, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. He said, being pro-life is not just about being anti-abortion. Yes, it must ab address abortion, but it must also be the sanctity of all lives from womb to tomb. And Christians have had this incredible history, and we seem to have lost it a little bit here and there. But Christians were the advocates for the poorest and weakest non-contributors of society. That was the Christian's role. They're the ones who started orphanages and schools and hospitals. When kids were left out and, uh, for exposure, it was Christians who would come and gather and adopt those kids. That is the tr that's our family lineage and, and, and trajectory. 
And I think God is inviting us, if we want to take this truth that all human beings are made in the image of God, then we have to be people who stand up and protect all of humanity. And what's interesting is, uh, and maybe because my mom's getting a little older now, she would hate that I would say this, but, um, you know, we, we, we want to care for people of different races and nationalities and ethnicities, but what's weird in our culture, even more and more, my mom is feeling it, I don't know if some of you are feeling this, but as soon as you become a drain on your kids or a drain on society, we have to kind of find a way to, to do away with you. Like, what a horrible thing that we now have lived in this utilitarian culture and context, whereas Christians, right, we should be the ones who are advocating and caring for all humans, not just those who benefit me in this moment in culture of society, all human beings. It's a huge cost. It is a huge um, challenge. And I think it's one of the things why I think Genesis 1 is so awesome. We don't want to get stuck in the weird um, different debates and we don't just want to sideline ourselves without actually wrestling with the true message of Genesis. And so here it is, 2019. I think we, Genesis chapter 1 is just as relevant as it is today um, as it was back then. Our issues are a little bit different. Um, our situations are a little bit different. But I think God um, has two really important truths, that, like I said. And uh, this week I've been really wrestling with two important kind of takeaways. And these are takeaways that I've been wrestling with, um, and maybe you might be wrestling with them um, as well. And so if God, the first truth is this, right? If there's just one true God, Yahweh is the creator of all heaven and earth. And we think we're not, we're not savages. We don't believe in like the river God and we don't believe in the sun God and the moon God. Like that's not how we work. We're civilized. We're scientists. We, we don't believe in those silly gods. But the truth is, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, oh my goodness, but there is this weird God that we actually do worship here in our context. And it's this God of humanism. It's a philosophy that started in the Renaissance, um, got some traction in the French Revolution. We found a way to kind of Christianize it a little bit. But really, humanism, what it's done is instead of saying God is the ultimate authority or the state is the ultimate authority or the king is the ultimate authority, it's now saying, no, no, I, in of myself, I'm the ultimate authority, the human being, the individual human being, not all the humans, but just me personally, how I think and how I feel, I am the center of the universe. And so in some sense, for me, I was like taken back, like, oh my goodness, it's not what, what are my idols when all of a sudden it's like, what if I'm actually the idol? I am the one who's fully in conflict with God of who is the one true God. And you know, you see the way it's seeped into our culture because, I mean, fill in these blanks, right? If you want to make a decision, you're supposed to listen to your heart, right? You ever hear that? If you're like, how do I know if I should do this or not, right? You listen to, you listen to your heart. Um, what about this one? Like, you know when you're going shopping, this is an economic thing, right? That the customer is always right. But you know what? The customer is not always right. I went to this really fancy dinner last night, and, um, and the waiter was telling the story that some guy went into this restaurant, and it was a super fancy restaurant, right, where the, it's Michelin rated, which means this, the, the chef knows his stuff, which means this guy who's been perfecting his craft forever and ever and ever creates this incredible meal that's going to satisfy your entire palate. And some guy walked in and said, hey, I, I see that you did this, this, and this, but can you just make me a cheesesteak instead? And what's so rad, this place is so nice. They're like, uh, we don't need your business. And they just like booted him out of the restaurant. I'm like, yes, that's how it should be, right? But we think the customer's always right. I deserve a cheesesteak. And the guy's like, no, there's a chef who made this thing for us. It's in us. The, the customer is, um, is always right. What about for, for you art fanatics out there, right? Beauty, where's beauty found? in the eye of the beholder. That's not true. <laughs> Have you seen modern art? You know what's crazy is before, the, before all the, like, the 60s, there was actually an objective, like beauty was, like there was an objective standard of what beauty was. 
but now it's just in the eye of the beholder. Like we have just atomized all those things down to ourselves, even now to the point of ethics. How do I know if something is right or wrong? It's not what God says. It's not what the rules say. It's if I feel. How does that make me feel? It's a pretty weird thing. Like, if, especially we go, if it, if, it, if it doesn't hurt anybody and it feels good to me, then that's great. But how do we know how that's going to hurt other people? What if how you feel and how I feel are different, right? And, and you feel in our culture, we don't even know how to talk to each other because we're fully devolving into these atomized ways because we are humanists, right? Even our walk with God, how do I know if I'm doing it right in my walk with God? Because I want to live a fulfilled life where God is making me all that I want to be. And there's some truth in Scripture, right, that God uses us and empowers us and, and, and has a, gets a, we need to be partners with Him. But we've kind of taken that and gone a little too far. And our happiness, our joy, our fulfillment has been the center. And like you're probably more whole than I am, but boy, what a thing I had to wrestle with this week. If God is the God of all of creation, the God of all of gods, could He even be the God of my weird little God where I put myself in the center of the universe? That was one hard takeaway. The second was this. Could we actually get our head around that all human beings are made in the image of God? And I, I came to the conclusion, I think the answer is no. I think we all want to. And I've seen people be so warm-hearted towards the people that are in their clan and in their tribe. They have so much grace and so much mercy and extend so much dignity and honor to people who are in their tribe, who agree with them on certain issues or are, in, you know, they're their people or they're their favored, uh, they're their favored um, cause. But everybody outside of that, it is like total warfare out there. Um, I, I, I love watching the news. I love politics. I've been watching um, this last week on the news, and especially on Twitter, it was like total madhouse out there. Um, the, as uh, they were, the, the administration was trying to think if they were to do these uh, raids on undocumented immigrants. And, uh, and so the, like, part of the internet totally exploded about that. And then they decided to not uh, do those. And then the whole other part of the internet exploded. And what I realized was th- there's this tiny little slice. Well, it's not tiny anymore, but there's this slice of our context of all these undocumented um, people, many of whom are actually in our congregation. And we've all found ways to speak about them in ways that are other. And both sides of the political aisle have, are using them as like ground zero for political warfare. And we think we have a good heart for them because of however they fit to our side or the other side. But really, they're just be objects in a different sort of way. To use the poor marginalized as a weapon for our own tribal warfare has got to be the worst thing. And I think us Marin County people, maybe not you, but me, boy, that's like the most convicting thing I've been wrestling with this week. And so I think this what if we really got our head around that the weakest and poorest and marginalized among us, the people who actually disagree with us politically, and we don't just judge the crap out of them, we don't just write them off, we don't give them the worst motives, we don't just look over them, but we actually see them. I mean, we're a small church, right? We're 400 people, but what if 400 people, what if our 400 people left here and decided to commit to treat every single person that we come in contact with the dignity and the respect that they are made in the image of God. I love our worship team and they just, they have such incredible music and songs that speak to the depths of our soul about how incredible God is and how much God loves us. We love to sing those songs and and get our heads straight that we are this object of God's affection. It's such incredible good news. 
And what if we could take that good news and let all of that affection that we want to understand for ourselves also be true of the person who is different from us, who doesn't see the world the same way, who is cutting us off on the freeway or driving us crazy or has stayed a little too long at our home or whatever. Not you, Blake, but you know, whoever, whoever that is. So for me, when I think Genesis chapter one, it is, it is an incredible chapter and there's all sorts of great debates to be had about science and, um, and how that works with faith and what are all the, the Hebrew words mean. But my hope for us is that we wouldn't get lost in the weeds, but that we would take a step back and recognize that the story of God, the narrative of God, it begins with the North Star. It begins that God is the one true God. He created all that there is. He is the God over heaven and earth. And God created human beings, women and men, in his likeness for his joy, for his pleasure. And what an incredible thing if we would slide into that story and submit to God more and more and love our fellow human being with the way that God loves us. Boy, I think we might be good news to a world that needs it.